This is the English Heritage Podcast. Hello and welcome back to your weekly podcast, Into England's Past. I'm Charles Rowe. Don't forget to subscribe to join us with new episodes every Thursday. Now, one of the great things about visiting one of English Heritage's grand residences is imagining what it would have been like to live there. We can enjoy the architecture, the decorative rooms, the tall ceilings, the colourful gardens and the views that go on forever. And we can even take tea. But now imagine that you're living in the 1800s and you have a vision to build a glorious new home. How would you go about making your grand design a reality? Well, that's what we're discussing today as we discover the inspiration behind the design of Belsay Hall and its gardens in Northumberland. Joining us to interpret this architectural beauty and its setting are Properties Historians team leader, Dr Andrew Han. Hello there. And Landscape Advisor, Emily Parker. Hello. Now, Andrew, for people who don't know Belsay Hall, can you describe first where it is? Well, Belsay is it's about 23 miles northwest of Newcastle-upon-Tyne. So it's in a rural area of Northumberland that's relatively flat-lying land, and you've got hilly areas, the Cheviots are to the northwest, but this is a fairly gentle, sloping area of Northumberland. Mm. Could you give us a brief history of the site? Because obviously its full title, according to English Heritage, is Belsay Hall, Castle and Gardens. So that obviously indicates some layers of history that we need to explain. Well, the story of Belsay begins in the mid-13th century when the site's first settled by the Middleton family, and that's the family that still owns the estate today. And this is in about 1270, when the site's actually known as Belshoe at this point. And it was owned by a gentleman called Sir Richard de Middleton. And he was quite important in the court of Henry III. He was the Lord Chancellor at the time, between around 1269 and 1272 when Henry dies and that means he's an important member of the court and he's really the most prominent member of the Middleton family throughout its history and then the Middletons then hold the estate pretty much continuously until the 21st century and there's a short period uh, in the early 14th century when the site leaves family ownership and this is because one of Richard's heirs, Sir Richard's heirs, John Middleton, he joins a rebellion led by his cousin Gilbert de Middleton and this was during the period of anarchy following uh, Edward II's defeat at Bannockburn and the rebels basically capture some cardinals are on the way to Scotland on a diplomatic mission and they extort money from the Bishop of Durham but when the rising, the uprising fails, both of them are captured John and Gilbert, and they're both executed as traitors and their estates forfeited. So the Belsay estate goes out of the hands of the Middleton family for a generation. But then in about 1291, the estate comes back to the family through marriage. So the people who owned it, the Strivelins, married into the Middleton family again. From then onwards, the estate is effectively in the Middleton's hands. And then we know that there's already a fortified substantial manor house here by 1298 because Edward I stays there during a hunting trip in north of England. But the castle that we know today, it's a magnificent tower house and that's not constructed until the late 14th century by Sir John Middleton IV. He's the one who takes over the estate when it comes back into the Middleton's ownership in the 1390s and he builds this tower house. And this is at a time when the border area of the north of Northumberland is is a pretty lawless place with lots of sort of bands of marauding border reavers. That's 
groups of raiders, raiders effectively, yes, who are crossing over for the Scottish border on cattle raiding and just sort of general sort of pillaging in the in the countryside. And at this time, most houses in this part of Northumberland are fortified tower houses known as Peel Towers. And so you find these on both sides of the border. You find them in southern Scotland and you find them in northern England. So Belsay is typical of the type of house you'd expect to find at that time. Basically, the tower house stays as such. It's a tower house, but it has probably a whole series of attached buildings, probably a, a great hall. We know that there's a, a sort of guest wing to the north, semi-detached to the tower house. And then there would also probably be ancillary buildings like stables and kitchens and whatever. But then you find in the early 17th century, following the union of the two crowns, the north of England becomes a lot more peaceful. So you find the then owner, Thomas Middleton, he decides to erect alongside the tower house an unfortified manor house in a sort of more fashionable sort of Jacobean style. And this is probably in place of, of an earlier building, possibly a great hall. This manor house, parts of it survive, and the date stone above the entrance suggests it was erected in 1614. So that's just around the time after James I has come to the throne and when the area is more peaceful. And then there are further wings added in the later 17th century, including a west wing and a stable block in the later 18th century by one of the later owners, Sir William Middleton, who had a group of racehorses. So the castle develops over time to become rather from a fortification to sort of quite a comfortable manor house. Yes, and I think from a bird's eye view and from the view that you would have outside as well, you can see a lot of layers of history with the different designs, architectural styles, etc., can't you? You certainly can looking at the castle from above. I mean, today it's a, it's a ruined structure, but there are mm. still elements of all those different phases that are there. So how do we get to the point where the Belsay Hall that we see today, the first thing you see when you drive up the driveway, how does that come into being? Why does the castle and its previous history sort of fall by the wayside? When the third baronet died, he had considerable debts in 1757. So basically all the furniture in Belsay and all the contents of the house were sold off and all his racehorses. The next generation of the family who inherited didn't actually live at Belsay for much of the time. And then you had the fifth baronet came in and he does move into Belsay and refurnishes it. But he again runs into financial difficulties. His wife dies in 1793, I believe. And then after that, he moves with his children to stay with his parents-in-law, the Monk family in Lincolnshire at Cambey. And so Belsay is then left for several years unoccupied. Sir William then dies in 1795, and his son Charles inherits Belsay, but he doesn't really move in until 1798. So there's a sort of five-year period where Belsay is empty. And one can only assume that it probably got a bit musty inside, maybe a little bit of mould growing in there. It wasn't in a good state of repair from being left vacant for several years. And also Sir Charles Monk, when he comes to the castle, he's very keen on, on creating a new house for himself. Uh, he feels the old house is a, is a bit old fashioned. And so he makes a decision to build his new hall in a new fashionable uh, style. After doing so, he then abandons the old castle, which is effectively semi-ruined as a uh, an eye-catcher in the gardens, and it's also used as a residence for his estate steward. Oh, right, so that's something that I didn't appreciate before. So the steward would have actually been living in fairly decent quarters while the rest of it was sort of just left to sort of rot, really. Effectively so, yeah. I mean, it, the rest of it was left to sort of genteelly decay. You know, it, it was mm. sort of semi-demolished, so but it looked picturesque. So let's look at Charles Monk's vision then. 
because obviously he's sort of inherited this place which is becoming slightly dilapidated he wants to build something brand new and functional and working and and all the rest of it can you describe the actual hall as we see it today its color shape main features you would describe it I guess as a sort of modern villa in the fashionable Greek revival style it's uh, a style which was just coming into prominence in the early 19th century and it's completed over a 10-year period between 1807 and 1817 so it's quite a long process of building this and Sir Charles Monk is effectively his own architect and what he creates is a hall which is really austerely classical in style it's very plain and and severe in uh, in its outlook it's quite blocky isn't it it is very blocky it's it's effectively a stone box yeah although each With side columns. is exactly each side is slightly different and has has slightly different ornamentation but it's fairly simple ornamentation so it's constructed of a really sort of beautiful honey-coloured sandstone and the blocks that it's made from are so finely tooled that it's not actually mortared in between the blocks they're simply stacked on top of each other wow that's remarkable it's really sort of precisely made and it's also exactly a hundred feet square so it's, it's like a greek temple and like a Greek temple, it sits on this sort of stepped plinth, which is known as a crepidoma. And it appears, when you look at it, as if the house is two storeys high, because there's a basement which is concealed, but also the attic storey is concealed as well. And the way that Charles has done that is that the windows in the attic storey face inwards towards a light well in the centre of the building, rather than outwards, so you don't have your usual sort of dormer windows from the attic storey. So it enables it to keep this very plain and clean appearance and also you've got the entrance front, which is really distinctive. It has it has a portico, but it's a portico which is set into the building. It's described as a portico in antis. So rather than projecting outwards from the building, the portico, which is supported on two Doric columns, and these columns are copied from a temple in Athens known as the Theseion. There's a lot of influence there from, from the Greek side of things, as you've been describing. And I think one of the most impressive things apart from the first two opening columns that you see as you walk into the hall is the main central entrance hall which looks like a greek forum like a marketplace doesn't it with all those other mini columns surrounding balustrades above your head and the bedrooms you step inside but it almost feels like you're outside (laughs) it does i mean sir charles specifically decided that for instance in his entrance hall which you first enter enter into there's no plaster the the stonework is completely bare still so it doesn't seem like you're going into a temple rather than into a comfortable house and then you come through the double doors into this pillar hall which as you say has all these columns and it has a balcony around around the top and although it might look grecian in style the interior layout is really more modeled on a roman villa in that the various rooms are set out around this central light well and, and, and hallway area and of course the decoration within the hall in terms of the friezes around the tops of the rooms are very much in grecian style and they're based on some of the some of sir charles's books which he he got design patterns from we've got a good sense now of the sort of grecian greco-roman influences that we can see in the house but how did Charles get all these ideas? He went, obviously, abroad, I'm guessing. So this austere neoclassical design came from some travels. It did indeed. I mean, Sir Charles was a, was an inveterate traveller and uh, he travelled a lot, really, from his youth. One of his the most probably influential travels was he went off on honeymoon after he married his wife Louisa in the September of... 1804 and they went off on a on effectively a two-year honeymoon traveling across Europe to Greece now because of the Napoleonic Wars they couldn't travel the normal route which would be via France 
and then through Italy. So they had to go through northern Europe and they came down through Berlin and then through Vienna and then down to Venice and then across to Greece in that way. And whilst he's travelling, Charles is busily visiting historic sites and antiquities along the route. He's taking measurements from buildings. He's sketching lots of the things he sees and recording them in his diary. Not only the architecture, but also the surrounding landscape and flora and the antiquities he's witnessing. So he's very much taking note of what's around him. And he uses some of this directly, as I mentioned, in the construction of his house. So the measurements from the columns of the Theseion, which is a temple in Athens, this allowed him to reproduce those columns for the portico of the house. And also, of course, he's backing this up by the fact he has a very large collection of books on Greece and Greek Greek architecture. He's done an avid collector of books on this, and we've got his li- a list of his library collection. You can see that most of the books which had been published at that time on Greece, which was a, not a well-known place at all. I mean, the Grand Tour had always been to Italy, and Greece was much more of a sort of unknown area for Mm. travellers, partly because it had been part of the Ottoman Empire, so it hadn't been accessible to European travellers until coming into the mid-18th century. Really, when Charles is travelling now in the early 19th century, it's an area that is largely unexplored by people on the Grand Tour, so... I was just going to say, the the Grand Tour is effectively sort of the older version of a gap year, is that right? (laughs) Yes, the Grand Tour is effectively, it's like a sort of finishing school for young gentlemen. You would go off often with your tutor and travel round the antiquities of Europe, particularly focusing on on Italy, but also parts of southern France and other areas of of Europe and the the low countries in France. So his honeymoon is effectively like a a delayed grand tour with his wife dragged along in tow. Yes, of course. Could you give us a list of what classical Greek sites that he did visit and, and how they play their part in the house? From the diary, we sort of have a pretty clear indication of of how he travelled. We know he travelled through Berlin and he looked at things like the Brandenburg Gate, which had just been created at that point. It was fairly new, Mm. so he enthused about that. Then he travelled through Vienna and then down to Venice, which he actually was quite disparaging about. He thought it was rather dark and sooty, all the buildings were black not particularly impressed with Venice. Okay. And then he, he went via the Greek islands. He went via sort of Zante and Kefalonia and then down making his way to Athens, which he reached in the sort of early summer of 1805. And then whilst there, he spent a lot of time in and around Athens, visiting the various different sites in the area. So he visits the Theseion. He also goes up onto the Acropolis and visits the Parthenon and the Erechtheion. He visits the Tower of the Winds which actually then later informed the hexagonal style of the tower of the stable block, his new stable block at Belsay, which is adjacent to the new hall. Mm. But he also tours a bit further afield because he, he sort of meets up with a number of other archaeologists, antiquaries and whatever, who were based in Athens at the time, people like Sir William Gell, and they go around touring around these various different sites. So he visits places like the Cave of Pan at Vari, the Citadel at Eleusis, Mycenae, Corinth, back to Zante on the way back as well. And in each of these places, he's keeping a detailed record of what he's seeing, the architecture, the scenery. And maybe if I just give one fairly brief example from the diary, it'll give you a flavour for what he's actually writing about as he he travels. So, so for instance, on the uh, the 5th of July, 1805, he describes an expedition to the island of Aegina, which is in the Saronic Gulf, which is about 27 kilometres from Athens. So... He says, after drinking tea under the cliffs upon the beach, we set out upon two asses to ascend Mount Panhellenicus. 
You come to a ravine or narrowing valley between two mountains in the midst of the islands and across this is on another range the ruins of the Temple of Jupiter Panhellenicus show themselves most beautifully. The mountains are all overgrown with wild mastic, berry-bearing cedar, erica arborea and australis, Greek pine, several sorts of citrus, wild thyme, etc. So you can see from this that he's talking about the ruins of the temple. He's also talking about the scenery that he can see. He's talking about the flora and the plants that he spots. It's a real postcard view, isn't it, really? If you it didn't really ha- is a postcard view, yeah. If you didn't have a postcard, that would be quite a descriptive and evocative memory to sort of hold on to. I think this is something that really he puts to good use when he gets to Belsay. He's trying to sort of recreate something of the nature of ancient Greece at Belsay. And also, it has to be said, on his travels elsewhere, he's very, very descriptive of what he's seeing in terms of the architecture and buildings, landscape, flora, fauna, all the different sort of elements that go to make up the scene. Yeah, a a very forensic collection of um, descriptions. And he often sketches them as well, so he draws the measurements onto the sketch. So when you're reading the diary, you suddenly come upon a little sketch of one of the temples or of a particular statue or or so forth with measurements alongside it. So, Mm. And he's very, very clear when he's building Belsay that he wants these measurements to be correct and correct in the sense of how they would have been in Greek temple buildings. So, for instance, with the Crepidoma, all the steps on the Crepidoma, that's the the stepped plinth on which... uh, the hall sits have mm-hmm. to be one foot in height but if you think about how high a step is now when you go up one foot is actually quite high for a step so it, it means that they're not particularly comfortable for climbing up to get up to the hall when you climb into the hall today there is that modern wooden collection of steps that would get you in because uh, otherwise yeah. yeah you would have trouble there is indeed yeah i mean which is basically a practical solution to the fact that what he created was quite impractical for living in but aesthetically it looked right with the scale of the of the building yeah but it's very precise but it's um also very beautiful as well i think that there's a lot Mm. of well thought out sort of symmetry and structured lines that would attract your eye let's talk about that stone then that um makes up the property now i presume he didn't get it from greece where did he get the, the stone from to build the hall no, the stone comes very locally from a quarry on the estate. In fact, it's it's in the grounds between the where the hall now sits and the castle. And it's an area that's close to where the walled garden used to be, the old walled, walled garden associated with the castle. And what he effectively does is he quarries this out in such a way as to create a sort of sinuous canyon, which effectively links the more formal gardens around the house to the castle with a sort of canyon-like sort of walkway. So he's created a sort of canyon-like quarry garden through the construction of the hall so mm. it, it's, it's, it serves a dual purpose it's both a process of extracting the stone which is then worked on site by local craftsmen and then used for, for building and in fact the quality of the tooling of the the stone blocks is such that we think that a lot of the local masons who were working on this project for building Belsay then went on to build a lot of the important Regency period buildings in parts of Newcastle upon Tyne because the skills that they'd learnt through doing this work on building of Belsay Hall because Sir Charles was so sort of finickety in terms of wanting everything to be absolutely correct that they had to build up these immense skills in mm. the in the period they were building the hall which of course is over a ten year period it's a it's a very long process yes I was about to say how long it all took but um, yeah that 
explains the grand vision and I think that's probably an adequate time frame from which to sort of quarry all this material from this location which is luckily on site and then obviously the byproduct of that is that you get a nice sort of quarried landscape garden to go with your new property. <laughs> exactly yes it's, it's all part of this grand vision and of course Sir Charles has you know knowledge of quarries as sort of aesthetic landscape features because not only has he got books showing pictures of things like the quarries on Sicily, but he later goes and visits, visits those in the 1830s, although not until after he's actually already created at least part of his quarry garden um, mm. at that stage. So, We'll talk more about those uh, landscapes, though, Andrew, and we'll bring in Emily, who's our landscapes advisor for English Heritage. So, Emily, let's talk a bit more about those uh, landscapes and the gardens, the quarry garden, the inspiration for the quarry garden we've talked about. Can you describe a bit more how it looks, though? So the quarry gardens, as you describe, are quite a, like a large, like cavernous ravine. They have high rock walls on all sides, and there are kind of two main parts to the quarries. There is one which is filled with this explosion of exotic and interesting plants, and then there's the other one which is quite sparsely planted with ferns, and that one creates quite a different kind of a dramatic rocky effect. Mm. Um, they're really hard to describe, actually, because they create quite a magical atmosphere when you go and visit them. So it's quite hard to describe unless you've been there. I always seem to end up going in the winter when it's not looking quite so profusion of plants. But yeah. the beautiful thing about going in the winter is that you can really see those kind of rock walls and it also it all looks so dramatic and beautiful. Yes, I mean, from the pictures that I've seen, because I didn't get a chance to go through the quarry garden when I visited Belsay for the podcast previously, it does give a sense almost of... If you've seen one of those films like the Jurassic Park films, you mm. sort of get a slightly sense of a sort of an ancient or prehistoric yeah, kind, kind of, of vision, don't you? It's kind of exploring like an unseen world almost. It's got this very much like you feel like you're the first person to discover it. It's got that kind of exploration feel to it, mm. which I think is quite exciting when it links back to, you know, what Charles Monk was trying to go and visit in Greece and exploring there. It's kind of got that sense of discovery in the same way, which is quite nice. Yes, and I think with the enormous rock walls it really gives you a sense of wonder doesn't it because your eyes are automatically drawn up those walls and then towards the sky Um, so the top of the quarries were deliberately planted with sort of yew hedges almost to make it look even taller than it is Mm. so it's not just the dramatic heights of the walls of the quarry it was also the extension of that through planting big trees and big hedges on the top to make it feel even more cavernous and vast Mm. um, which is quite a clever little bit of design as well so this quarry garden, is it actually unique to Belsay or are there other properties that we know of where this has happened before? It's not quite unique to Belsay. I know of at least one other example, but there is only a handful. And the other ones that I know about, they're often created for the same sort of reason. They're making an asset of quarrying the stone for a house or a new building on the estate, which is then repurposed to create that kind of quarry garden. At Belsay, the design of that garden, that rocky you know cavernous space was very carefully done when they used the put the stone for the house it was you know it was very carefully planned out so they could get that kind of intricate design mm. running through the plants that charles chose for the quarry garden include some that you wouldn't find normally growing in the uk because obviously we're in the northeast of england here we're not in the sort of <laughs> very warm temperatures of the mediterranean where did the plants that we have at belsay today come from the quarry creates it's a unique microclimate which allows the plants to survive in the quarry 
And that's not just the quarry itself. It's also protected by things like a, a quite a large shelter belt on one side that creates stops the winds from coming across it. So it's got this very unique microclimate, especially for the northeast of England. It's quite unusual in that respect. Wow. The plants growing there came from all over the world, and they still do. So North America, Africa... Later, when Arthur Middleton was involved, places like the Himalayas and China, they are a ex- really exciting collection of exotic plants. Sir Charles didn't plant it up as much as Sir Arthur did. So what we see today is kind of what Sir Arthur envisaged for the quarries after Sir Charles's death. Right. But part of the quarries, which is the kind of more sparse bit, is very much more in Sir Charles's vision. So you can kind of see a little bit of what they were both trying to do with that space which is Mm. quite interesting. It's kind of both men's vision at the same time, which is quite interesting. The rest of the gardens, though, at Belsay, outside this cavernous quarried garden space, above ground level, shall we say, where did the inspiration come for those? So the quarry gardens are only a very small part of the garden at Belsay. And just to give you a bit of an idea, it also includes sort of formal terrace gardens, a rhododendron garden and large areas of woodland. So Charles drew this inspiration from his travels, not only in Greece and in Sicily and all over the, in, on that part of the world, but also from his travels in the north of England and in Scotland, where he also did a little bit of a mini tour. Mm-hmm. And here he witnessed the wild and at times quite rugged scenery of the uplands. He also visited quite a lot of other gardens and got inspiration from some of them. And he also visited a lot of plant nurseries and took sort of inspiration from the plants that were available at the time. On several occasions on his trips, he describes the scenery such as waterfalls and crags and wooded valleys. So the gardens would have been like sort of an amalgamation of influences from Greece and northern England and also his library of reference books, which he had in the hall, and influenced as well by his horticultural knowledge, of which he was a very keen horticulturalist. So he was very interested in what plants he could grow at Belsay as well. Was he as interested in architecture and design as he was landscapes and horticulture? I don't think Sir Charles would have considered them as separate entities at all. He thought of the hall, castle and landscape and garden all as one kind of unified vision. He wouldn't have separated out his passion for architecture and his passion for landscape design as two separate things. Mm. He wanted them to work harmoniously together as kind of one you know, picturesque design or vision. And that's what you can see at Belsay today. You mentioned that word picturesque there. Is that the way that you describe the style of the gardens that the Sir Charles created at Belsay? Yeah, so the picturesque is a very fashionable style when Charles Monk is working on these gardens in the early 19th century. It actually emerged in the late 18th century and it sort of advocated for the shaping of the landscape in a more craggy, naturalistic fashion, often reflecting the kind of wild places and uplands in England and it replaced the sort of earlier design which is kind of more the kind of capability brown style design of sort of gentle slopes and smooth lines. And I suppose opposite to what we both experienced when we visited Kenilworth Castle as well with the Elizabethan garden with it with its grid (laughs) shapes. Completely different from that I mean yeah the fascinating thing about picturesque is that it doesn't necessarily take some of the formal elements away so for example at Belsay we have those quite formal terraces but there is a foreground as a kind of you know sort of ordered foreground to the expanse of the kind of picturesque vision beyond so Mm. it creates a kind of contrast almost and that's much more sort of the kind of work that kind of Huntley Repton was doing he was seen as the kind of next on from Capability Brown so 
there's quite a lot of different influences but it's definitely got this beautiful picturesque style which is quite rare to be able to see a garden like that still in England so it's quite exciting in that respect. Yes I'm looking forward to the time that I can actually get back up to the northeast mm. of England and go and take a walk through the quarried garden mm, uh, yep. hopefully during a summer when when it's blooming beautifully. So what kind of plants can we actually see when you know the gardens are in full bloom there? So both Sir Charles and his grandson Sir Arthur were fascinated by rhododendrons and that's one of the things that Balsay is really famous for so the gardens are still full of interesting and unusual rhododendrons. Some of my personal favourites are the huge gunnera which is also called the giant rhubarb so you that might help you imagine what it looks like um, and it as you say that's in the quarry and it certainly makes it feel like there's something left over from the kind of prehistoric dinosaurs um, yeah because it just adds to that atmosphere i also love the handkerchief tree which as the name suggests can be covered in large white bracts which look like pocket handkerchiefs which is quite right. pretty and my personal favorite which is the monkey puzzle trees which Again, they look kind of like leftover from kind of prehistory, which they are. They're one of the earliest surviving plants. And Sir Charles was so interested in monkey puzzles. He experimented with growing them in the parkland and woodland and planting them into parkland was very rare at that time. And they were some of the first that were planted in England that went in at Belsay in the sort of 1830s, so the very early introduction. But there's so many fascinating plants at Belsay, it's really hard to narrow it down, but they'd probably be my top sort of three. It sounds like a very inspirational and potentially influential place for a budding horticulturalist to visit. Would you agree? Oh, yes, I'd definitely recommend it to anyone interested in plants and anyone interested in sort of picturesque design and design of that time. It's quite unique as being able to kind of show that, especially in the north of England. It's got quite a nice atmosphere and, and yeah, I definitely recommend it as a place to visit if you're interested in plants at all. And a slightly warmer space than the rest uh, with <laughs> yes. that little microclimate that you can enjoy on certain days. I gather in winter it can be quite pleasant down there if you, if you can just catch the sun and, and you don't have mm. any wind. In a previous episode of the podcast, we spoke to English Heritage's head gardener about the current Belsay Awakes project, which people might have heard of. That's aimed at rejuvenating those gardens and conserving areas of the hall as well the castle parts and the coach house. Can you tell us how that project is progressing? So the works on the gardens are very much underway. So we did quite a lot of planting last spring and we're about to do some more uh, this coming spring. The overgrown areas, quite a lot of them are being cleared now and replanted so we can definitely reflect the vision of Sir Charles and Sir Arthur much better. Andrew and I are also very busy working on new plans for sharing the stories of Belsay with our visitors. Uh, with a new interpretation scheme, which we're busy working away on. Okay, and for, for people who don't know what interpretation is, that's, that's panels and boards and signage and this sort of thing. Yeah, it's all the stuff that we, so we can tell the story of Belsay to visitors on site. So it's, you know, going to be panels and sort of interactive items in the castle and that sort of thing. So it'll be a real mix. Right, okay, fantastic. So how's all this being funded, this Belsay Awakes project? So none of this would be possible without the support of the National Lottery Heritage Fund and National Lottery Players, who are helping to rejuvenate the gardens and create a new player and tea room and ensuring vital conservation works take place. So how does Belsay Hall compare to other English heritage properties from the same era? And do you think also that Sir Charles Monk and his grandson succeeded with their grand design? The garden at Belsay is unique amongst our properties. We don't have anything like this or anything in, in, in this kind of style as well, which is what makes it so special and an exciting place to visit. And 
I think it's a fantastic showcase for that kind of design and architecture of that period. And I think it's they definitely succeeded. They had a clear vision for what they wanted to do and it's something you can still see today. And I think that's a great success. Let's bring in Andrew again for a final comment as well. Do you agree that uh, it was a great success eventually, Andrew, after the 10 years that it took to quarry the stone and build the property itself and also then work on the gardens gradually? I think so. I mean, I think Sir Charles would have been delighted if he saw how Belsay looks today and the fact that his vision is still there in the landscape and that is still legible in, in what you can see in the, in the hall, castle and gardens. And the fact that we're doing so much to rejuvenate it at the moment through Belsay Awakes and then we're really going to be able to sort of bring these stories to the general public in a much more coherent way so they can actually share and appreciate Sir Charles and Sir Arthur's vision for the site. Was he an art lover as well? Because I gather that there's sometimes art displays on at the property. We're not aware of Charles being a, a huge connoisseur of the arts, in, other than obviously Greek and Grecian culture and Greek architecture. But certainly the modern art shows that have been there in previous years have been a real inspiration for a lot of the work that we're doing there at the moment in terms of the way that we're presenting the site. They've also informed things as seemingly unrelated as our play area that we're creating, which is going to be fantastic. So hopefully he'll, he'll, have, he'll have approved with the art inside the art, <laughs> so to speak. I suspect so, yes. I mean, I think he would have appreciated the thought that's gone into trying to sort of really get inside his own vision for the site and the way that we're presenting it and the way that we're taking this idea of going from tame to wild, the idea of the picturesque and going from this area that is quite controlled to the sort of wilderness areas of the quarry garden and castle. And we're actually putting that and bringing that into the way that everything is presented from the way that the trail's going to work and the way that the play area is going to be themed. So yeah, mm. I think I think he would I think he would approve. Yes. It's a place of contrasts, but contrasting beauty, I would say. Yes, very much so. Very much so. You've been listening to the English Heritage Podcast. If you'd like to see what we've been talking about, head over to the English Heritage YouTube channel and search for Belsay Hall. Next week, we'll investigate a kind of Game of Thrones story between Framlingham and Orford Castles in Suffolk. The big odd says anyone who comes onto my land and threshes the corn will come back without their hands. They're pretty fearless. That does seem to be you know, something of a family trait. Thanks for listening. See you next time.